Ken is one of those behind the scene guys that is just a wealth of knowledge and you can see it in his track record. It's pretty unparalleled. I think you guys will love it. Remember, if you do love it, be a friend, tell a friend and share. Thanks guys. Explore the minds and marketing strategies behind today's winning brands and businesses. Tap into the power of the creator economy with Earned by Creator IQ. Here's Connor Begley. Today, I've got Ken Landis on the show. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, Connor. Good to see you again. Well, let me, let me brag about you a little bit just so people know who you are. So you've got close to 40 years of experience, either as a CEO or founder at this point, over 20 years investing. Uh, your first role as CEO was at Benetton, uh, the cosmetics group there. Then you've been CEO at La Sportsac and Gurkha, which eventually became more of a conglomerate of fashion brands. You're also were one of the co-founders or the co-founder at Bobby Brown, along with Bobby, which you sold to Estee, co-founder at Tula Beauty, which became our number one skincare brand, which you guys sold to Procter & Gamble. And then most recently, Dibs Beauty, which is rocketing up our rankings. And then again, 20 years investing out of your own, your own capital. So I think that's a, a wealth of experience that we're not going to be able to cover in an hour, but we're going to try. Just want to just want to clarify it for the sake of my marriage. Actually, my wife and I were both uh, co-founders of Bobby Brown, okay. and my wife in particular was the president of Bobby Brown and, and ran the company along with Bobby. So they were both the the faces of the brand. I was yeah, I was in the background, just like I am with Tula and Diff. So uh, I would hate to I would hate to take the credit because she deserves a, a tremendous she and Bobby deserve a tremendous amount of credit that company. Well, so tell me about that, actually. In terms of co-founding of Bobby Brown, you went from more of an operational role within larger companies to being an entrepreneur. What was it that attracted you to it in the first place? Like what, what drew you into it? What drew me into Bobby yeah, Brown? Yeah, into co-founding just, Bobby Brown, yeah. Well, I, I was the CEO of a cosmetic company yep. at the time, Benetton Cosmetic, which was the global business. So I was traveling quite a lot and did business in 55 countries, which was quite interesting. Uh, my wife was actually um, a vice president in a PR agency that specialized in cosmetics. And we were friends with Bobby and her husband. And the whole thing just kind of transpired as you know, we talked about the industry and we thought, well, let's give it a shot. And uh, you know, we started off with 10 lipsticks in one door. That door was Bergdorf Goodman. And uh, we had no employees for two years. We no one wanted to give up the day job. <laughs> we met in the evenings and uh, weekends. And my wife was actually, my wife is Rosalind. And she was the first one that left her job and became president of the company. And she was, she ran the day-to-day operations. Very, very cool. How long did she stick with the group post-acquisition or did she, yeah, well. She stayed there about, I think about 11, 12 years. Yeah. Okay. So it's post-acquisition. We had a fairly uh, complex acquisition agreement. It was, a, there was, and I can't go into detail, but there was a lot of, there was an element of a large element of earnout. Mm-hmm. So she stayed during part of that earnout period. Yeah. I mean, I saw, I was reading about the kind of acquisition earlier and I think it was, I didn't, didn't realize it literally until today that Bobby herself had like a 25 year non-compete, which is like crazy. Like I've never heard of one that long. It's good that you guys didn't have that same kind of restriction or at least as long. Well, there was a reason for yep. it, frankly, because that was part of the earnout. Yep. So I guess for you, you know, across, particularly in beauty, you've had a pretty good string of successes here between Bobby, Tula, Dibs, obviously a lot in between. What do you think are kind of the core elements? If you were to look at the the core pieces that make one of these new businesses, particularly beauty successful, what what are they to you? Well, like focusing on beauty, I mean, you, you raise 
Bobby and then Tula and Dibs. And what were the elements that made that, those successful? There was a large span of time between what we did in Bobby's, which was the early 90s, to when we started Tula. And then we followed that with Dibs. I mean, I can say that it was fairly similar concepts there, which I think was helpful for making it successful. And But yet there was different tactics involved because the environment were totally different between when we started Bobby and when we did Tula. Yep. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of early stage companies. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make, and one of the you know, one of my pet peeves, is on distribution mm. and the distribution strategy. And I think that's really one of the core elements of what makes a successful brand. Quite often, I'll see you know, someone will pitch me an idea on, on a beauty company, and one of my first questions will be just, you know, what's your distribution strategy? And more often than not, they don't have one. <laughs> They'll say, well, we'll see who comes along. And and you know, I'm a big proponent of it's not the amount of sales that you have, but the quality of sales you have. And anybody who knows me, who's worked with me, knows I have a, a mantra which I use at least once a week with people, and it's called narrow and deep. Yeah. If if I'm involved in an early early stage company, I want it to start small and be relevant wherever you are, relevant in any distribution channel you're in, relevant in any door you're in if you're going into traditional retail. Let's go back to the Bobby Brown situation. At Bobby, the world was a lot different than it was today. There was no direct-to-consumer. There was no Sephora. There was no Ulta. There was a very, very um, dark demarcation line between the specialty stores and the department stores and then the department stores and a JCPenney or, or a Kohl's. You, know, you had to really understand what your distribution was. Now, the big advantage we had there is that there were basically two indie companies at the time. There was Mac that came out before us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you know, we created the company, but we wanted to be differentiated from Mac. So we chose the high-end specialty stores as our focus on distribution. And we were laser-focused on that distribution. And, and because there were very few indie companies, we were able to really get some pretty spectacular deals for giving exclusivity. And... Um, you know, people used to ask us, like, what was your distribution strategy? And we would joke and we'd say, well, we say no to everybody. <laughs> and it, it's, it's really true. We, you know, we would, we would choose the store that we, the store that we felt was the leading prestige uh, specialty store in, in that city. And then we would say no to everyone else until such time we became the number one brand in that store. And then we would consider some other distribution. So we were really, really focused on, um, on, on, on market share within any door we're in. So it's really narrow and deep for me. And that was really, in my mind, one of the keys to success. Other than, of course, product is everything. You have to have product. <laughs> but I see tons of great products that fail because they just don't have a good distribution strategy. So now fast forward to Tula, totally different retail environment. Obviously, you had direct-to-consumer. Obviously, you have... Sephora, you have Ulta, you have Sephora at Kohl's, you have Ulta at Target. So there's there's a lot, there's a lot more of the blurring of the lines. And, and and more importantly, whereas there was really only two indie companies when we did Bobby, there are many, many indie companies now. And it's really hard to break through the noise. It's really hard to get the level of support that you need uh, from a retailer. To, to really create your brand and maintain the brand image the way you want it. You can go in and you're going to get a few facings on a new, you know, new and notable section, 
but it's really doesn't give you the ability to create your brand image the way you want it. So, um, you know, with Tula and you know, I have to say between Bobby and Tula, I saw many, many companies and I really decided not to get involved because I thought it was too risky. There was too many people looking for the same shelf space, looking for the same consumer. And you want to find some way of differentiating yourself. So, um, as you know, I, I, I found a phenomenal partner in Dan Reich, who is brilliant when it comes to e-commerce and brilliant when it comes to tech. So between the two of us, we had complementary skills. And uh, we can go very close. We could finish each other's sentences. But yet, you know, I rely on him totally on the e-commerce side. And he relies on me on, on the beauty side. And so we decided with Tula that we would, our track would be basically do the digital first, the digital first strategy. Mm -hmm. And within the digital first strategy, as, as you know, Connor, we, we focus very, very much on the, um, the influencer sector yep. and created what we felt and what we decided was a specific distribution channel separate from paid media, separate from wholesale, that was that influencer channel. And we managed it as a separate and distinct influencer channel. Hmm. And, and by doing that, we were narrow and deep within that you sector. all the way to number one deep. <laughs> That's and, and, and believe me, you know, we tried desperately how to, to break the code on your EMV, but we didn't. <laughs> but, we, but we kind of created our own. We said, okay, fine. We like this because, you know, what I like about, well, yeah, I'm going to give you a little advertising. Right? You know, it's, 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 it's not about the, the eyeballs. It's about the engaged eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And that was really what we were set out to do. I mean, you know, we didn't go after the beauty bloggers. We went after small micro bloggers that were either lifestyle bloggers, mommy bloggers, uh, health and fitness bloggers, you know, people who were just interesting people yep. who were our target consumer. And, and we worked with them as a partner. And, and really, we built a whole team of people that just worked with the individual influencers to, to make sure they knew everything that was going on in our company knew and, and, and we would give them ideas of what worked, what didn't work. And, and we saw them as entrepreneurs, just like we were entrepreneurs. And, you know, we were able to build pretty um, impressive businesses with them. And, um, you know, it allowed us to break through the noise and also create a, a path to profitability pretty quickly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, you know, when, when we moved on to, to dibs, it's basically a, a similar playbook but with some tweaks, which we can get into down the road. Yeah, we should definitely get into it. I have like, I was trying to keep track of all the questions I had as you were talking, but I'm going to do my best. I don't want to rewind okay. too much, but it's something that's kind of stuck with me. You mentioned early on, I'm really focused on the quality of the revenue, right? So quality, you know, you mentioned one aspect there, which is like, hey, how are we doing the channels that we're in, right? So we're in this channel. Are we the number one brand in that channel, whether it's a door or online influencers, whatever? Um, what are other signals for quality of revenue that you pay attention to? Like what's important? Repurchase rates? Like what, what is it that you look at? Well, you know, you, at the end of the day, we're creating a brand. Mm -hmm. Okay. And hopefully that brand will have a long life. Yep. Uh, and so it's, it's, how are we displayed? How do we look? Where are we within the store? Yep. Okay. Well, do we look important? Is is the message of the brand being communicated? Mm -hmm. 
So those are the types. They're more important than the volume of sales. Interesting. The volume of sales will come. Yep. But it's just creating that brand. And that's become harder and harder. There's so many indie brands. It's really hard to create a real brand identity. Whereas in the old days, you know, you had a counter yep. in the store and you were able to control that entire environment. It's kind of different right now. Yeah, totally. Well, like you said, I think from a retailer perspective, you know, there's training the staff, training the team that's there, that's, you know, representing the product itself. But ultimately, it's pretty hard to stand out, just pure shelf space, right? Like, at least compared to, hey, I'm going to watch a 25-minute video about this brand on YouTube where I get into all the kind of nitty-gritty. It's just a much deeper connection there, theoretically. Which, which is why I, I like direct-to-consumer. Yep. In direct-to-consumer online, I can control every aspect of the interaction between the company and the consumer. The way they see the brand, the way we're communicating the brand, the way we do our customer service, everything is controlled. And, and, you know, in the long term, that's really very valuable. Yeah, 100%. Well, it's so it's interesting because I think your background historically has been more on the kind of back end operational side, but obviously you've gotten, or maybe it always has been deep into kind of digital marketing, direct con to consumer, et cetera. I'd be curious, having been, you know, the number one brand at Tula, you know, I think one of the conversations we were having at dinner is how that space has changed, right? Now, at, now that you're at Dibs and over the last, call it four or five years, what have you guys observed is different in that space today than it was when you first started? In the influencer yeah. space? Okay. Um, well, first of all, I mean, let me let me differentiate Dibs versus Tula. Yep. Dibs is a company cosmetic line. Um, Tula is skincare, as you know. Yep. Um, the color cosmetics is, is a different animal than skincare, and, and you have to treat it differently when you're um, communicating with your customer. Yep. Um, you know, color cosmetics is more fashion oriented, basically a low, lower CAC, lower LTV. You know, people aren't that loyal to the brand. Whereas, mm -hmm. um, uh, in skincare, there's higher CAC, higher LTV and, uh, it's, it's hard to convert. Yep. So there's a different strategy that you have to use. You can't just use the same playbook and, and we're very sensitive about that. The, the other aspect that has changed is, you know, when we did Tula, we were relatively early on, you know, dealing with these micro influencers. And for the most part, we were able to create rev share deals with them. And from, you know, as you know, my, my background of finance, that's a variable cost and there's nothing better than the variable <laughs> cost. It's really a company. And, yes. Well, so I, I love this. And, you know, so, but, over the you know, over time, the uh, a lot of the influencers and a lot of the better influencers you know, woke up and said, "Okay, I, we like this rev share, but we want to now we want to pay pay to play, or we want to retain our plus a rev share." So it became a little bit more complicated, and, and and it became a little bit more expensive. But at the end of the day, it's the same concept. Yep. You know, whether you're paying on a pay to play basis or you whether paying on a rev share basis, you know, you can look at the ROAS and say, "Okay, is this a ROAS that I'm comfortable with?" You know, you may not know it after the first um, shot, but over time, you know, we will analyze that. We will keep track of it. And, and we want them to know and say, look, this is what we expect of you. If you maintain this, we'll do anything you want. Yep. Okay. But this is what we expect. And, and we, you know, again, we try to partner. That they, they need to understand we're not just going to write big checks to people if they're not going to perform and if they're not going to bring the register the way they should. Yep. 
So um, it's, but it's, it's became, it's, it's become a little harder for us to keep track, but it's, it's just still the same playbook of working with influencers and, 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 and really making, teaching them to be our partners and to be entrepreneurs like us. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the things I'd be curious about there in terms of how you factor it in, and it's something that we think about a lot, right? Is, you know, this concept of organic coverage, right? Because if you look at all the content about Tula or about dibs, 90% of it's going to be organic, right? And I think one of the underrated elements of saying like, hey, we've got this person, they're a big supporter of the brand. They're now being cut into that, right? In from a monetary perspective is like, oh, wow, I'm supporting Tula and now Tula's helping support me, right? Like I'm making a bunch of money off of that. And so that message spreads very quickly. We're like, oh, if you talk about Tula, you may get the opportunity to be a partner where you can actually make a lot of money, right? How did you think about that interplay between kind of paid relationships and organic coverage? Or did you guys get that deep in terms of your, your thinking? Um, no, no. We, I mean, we just felt if we got the word out, yeah, we, we just send product out to a, a lot of different um, yep. influencers. We didn't ask for anything. Yep. If, you know, and we said to them, if you like it, give us a call and let's talk. If you don't like it, you know, give it to, you know, give it to a friend. <laughs> yeah. So if they did like it, we really, you know, we were very serious about building the business with them and trying to teach them how to be entrepreneurs. And, and many of them, we started very, very early on. Over 50% of our sales were directly related to the influencer channel. So it was a, Crazy. it was a big element. <laughs> you got a big smile on your I face. I mean, you it's like a, it, it's you? a big deal. Right. And that's probably of what you can track. There's probably more that's happening offline. Right. Cause like the thing I think a lot about is who follows a makeup artist online, who follows a skincare influencer online. It's somebody that's really into the category, right? Like there's somebody that is disproportionately interested in that. And so there's all these offline effects that occur as well, where it's like, my wife likes to run, so she follows Hungry Runner Girl, the blogger, and when her friends need advice on running gear, they ask her because she's the big runner, right? So you have this same kind of offline dynamic that's even more difficult to, to capture. So if you're attributing 50% of it, I'd, I'd estimate that's a minimum, right? Which is wild. It, it, it is interesting you say that because what we discovered is a lot of the sales from influencers, they were buying it at Ulta. Or, or request. Yeah, exactly. Although, exactly. And, you know, you know, talking about what's the best way of, of negotiating a retail deal is when customers start asking for you when, when they go into the stores. Yep. So, you know, they pay attention to that. So we felt we had a, a, a big spillover from the influencer word of mouth into the retail stores. Remember, we entered Ulta, which we chose Ulta as our partner. We gave them an exclusive. They were very, very supportive. We started as the number 15 brand there. And within three years, we were the number one prestige skincare brand. So along those lines, we, we've had those conversations frequently, particularly in Europe, because what will happen is a brand will get momentum on social in the US, and then people will start hearing about it in Europe. So we were talking to the head of all beauty at Boots, which is the number one retailer in the UK. And uh, he's like, yeah, he's like, I remember pay, starting to pay attention to our our reports and top 10 lists. He's like, I looked at it and he's like, I only had one out of the 10 brands on the list. He's like, today I've got nine out of the 10. I'm like, pretty good. <laughs> but he made it like an internal because he knew, right? And I think, frankly, to your point earlier, I think one of the biggest mistakes that brands make is prematurely going into retail before they've built up that presence, right? And then 
oh, wow. you know, just not having the sell through and not having the momentum. And then, you know, they don't get that opportunity again. And to add to that, part of the problem is a lot of people, they'll go into a Sephora or an Ulta and they'll get a few facings and, you know, in some key doors and, and they'll, they'll do well. And then they say, okay, we're going to roll out now. And they discover very quickly that selling is easy. Sell through is really hard mm-hmm. and they don't have the capital structure mm-hmm. and, or the infrastructure to be able to support the brand in the stores. And it costs a lot of money to support these brands. And, you know, don't think that they, the products are going to sell by themselves. You have people in the stores on a regular basis. Unfortunately, a lot of early stage companies, and I'll see them because they'll all come looking for money and they hit a wall. Yep, totally. They, they go to support, they'll, they'll get that big order for 200, 250 doors. They think, you know, happy days are here again. And then they realize that they're not selling through. And then that's when the problems start. It's an even bigger challenge, right? At that point. Yeah, I think I like your uh, say no first and then let them kind of pull it out of you, right? Like, it seems like a better approach. The best way to negotiate anything is just say no. <laughs> There's a lot of power in that, right? Like, I have a big problem. I say yes to too many things, but I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good lesson. People want what they can do. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. You've mentioned early stage quite a few times, and and obviously that seems to be where you've really made your bread and butter over time, right? Is these kind of early stage businesses, either as an investor or as a as an operator? What is it about the early stage, you know, that really attracts you? And and like, what size does it have to get to? And you're like, yeah, this is not not that interesting anymore. I get inspired by young people. I, you know, I, I love learning about new business concepts. I love being involved at the early stage. There's, there's nothing like being at an early stage company and seeing that first dollar sale. It's, it's, it, you just can't it's wild. Anything. It's really cool. It, <laughs> you're always at that point understaffed. If you, if you have any staff at all and you're running around like chickens without your head to, without their heads just to get things done. And it's fun and it's exciting and and it's, but it's not for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, but then over time, uh, you know, you start adding people and then you start stepping away and stepping away and, and, and it's, it's still fun. You never get bored. You know, th- then you, your role changes to one of more of an advisor or a board member. You know, I'm, I'm generally a, a board member in all the companies. I don't necessarily want to um, be inside. Um, and uh, I, I enjoy the role. I enjoy the role as an advisor and I get involved inside when I have to, and, but I don't, I don't push my way in. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I'd actually, I'd make an adjustment to your first dollar of revenue coming in. I think it's like the first happy customer, right? It's like when you've sold something and they're genuinely happy, because that's when you know you have something, right? When they're like, oh, I really like this and I want to buy it again, right? And you're like, okay, we rolled out a product for the creators. And it was like, you know, you work on it, you work on it, right? released it. And then people started paying for it and they kept paying for it because they were happy, right? And they wanted to keep paying for it. And that's like an, oh shit, like, okay, we've got something here, right? Like we can find more of these people. We can make it better. We can improve on it, et cetera. Well, that's what I love about the direct to consumer. You know, you, you know, the first sale, but then you also know when the second sale happened, when the third sale happened. Absolutely. And, and that's the holy grail, you know, to, you know, to be able to see and learn what the cadence of reorders are is, is fantastic. Guy. So the, the, Best story I've heard of that by far is uh, if you know Moise Ali. So he was the CEO, the CEO and founder of Native, right? Native deodorant, um, which they sold to Procter and Gamble for like a hundred million dollars, and they owned it outright, right? Um, in like within a few years of launching. And the thing they did that was just 
fantastic using that same direct to consumer model that you're talking about was they released. So they had about a 20% repurchase rate and they were like, okay, we have to work on this, have to get it better. And so they released 24 different formulations over an 18 month period and they would side by side test it, right? So they'd make very small tweaks to the formula, release it, and then see which one would get the higher repurchase rates, right? And then they kind of, you know, worked their way up over time using that to about a 40% repurchase rate. And that was at the time of the acquisition, which I think gotten even better than, since then, right? But he's like, if I'm putting a dollar of marketing in, now I'm getting twice as much out of it, right? Or more, depending upon how you calculate the LTV. So yeah, it was a, it was a really cool story. I love that one. So let's talk about investing a little bit. So obviously let's put kind of beauty to the side for the moment. You made a bunch of investments across a bunch of different companies since 2000, right? So almost call it 20 to 25 years so far. What are the patterns you've seen across those businesses that have been successful? You talked a little bit about, you know, the retail strategy and being number one in the doors that you're in or in the channels that you're in. What are the other patterns? Like, are there any patterns across the founders and teams, any patterns across categories, anything you avoid now that you used to put money into in the past? I'm very focused and very disciplined on the types of deals I will even look at. Yep. So I, I generally look at companies that are not capital intensive. You know, I don't want to be, you know, rounds and rounds and rounds of, of financing. Um, I, I look where I, I look for companies in, in consumer products, at least where there's high margins mm -hmm. and, and potentially a, a reasonable exit. Um, now, as you know, I also do some tech investments. And although I, I certainly don't consider myself a tech person, I, I get involved in some SaaS platforms. Mm -hmm. But there's a common denominator between all of them. And for the most part, it's where I see a, a problem in an industry and a pain point in a company. And how can they use technology to eliminate that pain point? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you several advantages, like sticking with the beauty category, a, a company that I helped to co-found, it's a company called All Work. Okay. One of the biggest challenges in the cosmetic industry, especially in the prestige um, in, um, sector, where you have to bring beauty advisors into the store, is they're all freelancers. Mm -hmm. And you have to staff this up throughout the whole country. And it's a challenge of finding these people, of scheduling these people, training these people, evaluating these people, um, making sure they actually even show up. And coming from the industry, that was always like an incredible challenge because you never knew what you were spending and you never knew how effective it was. Yeah, I remember I'd have like there'd be a scrap of paper on somebody's desk saying, hey, Mary Jo, four hours of $15. So what, what All Work does is well, All Work is a platform. It started out in the beauty sector. Yep. It's a platform that basically allows brands to recruit, train, schedule. It, they, we have an app. They could, we could demonstrate that they showed up at the, at the store yeah. and we pay it. So we take that entire problem area, including paying, which is a real you know, issue you know, because you're having all these freelancers. So we take it off their books and, and basically they're on our platform managing the whole process. Uh, it's done very well. We, you know, and we now have expanded that into all freelancers, you know, in any business. So it's an example of you take a problem area, okay, and you use technology to, to make it better. Mm -hmm. um, an, another situation is, uh, you may have heard of it, it's, it's done quite well, it's called Jure. Yep. Jure is a marketplace connecting brands with their retailers, but all over the world. Yep. And, you know, running a company before this was always a problem. I remember I was running a cosmetic company 
this stuff this is when I was at Benetton and I get some requests for some small little shop in you know Abu Dhabi. <laughs> I, I do we want to sell? Do we not want to sell? Yeah. So you know, this just allows you to basically know who you're dealing with, what other brands are dealing with any one of these stores, and it's not it's, it's not only independent boutiques; it's also large department stores as well. And you know, that company now has offices all over the world and has over twenty billion dollars of of GMP flowing through every year. Yeah. So now, now I wasn't a founder of that company, but it's but I was I was the first investor. Yeah, they're actually so, so a the, sister company of ours. We have a common investor with them. So they're, I mean, they're killing it. They've done a great job. And so those are the, the types of things and, you know, that I like, I like to do. And then, then I did a, um, actually I did, I took Jure, the concept of Jure, and we created Jure for cannabis. So in cannabis, we have a, we have a marketplace which basically connects the manufacturers, growers of cannabis to the dispensaries. Uh, our, in, in, on a state-by-state basis, but obviously you can't, you, know, you can't cross borders. Yeah. How does that, that was actually one of the observations I had about your portfolio as I was looking at it. There was a few more cannabis companies in there than I expected. What, what, uh, what drew you to that industry? What was it about? Sixties. <laughs> yeah. What's been your, what's well, been your observation? Have they been good investments? Has it worked out? What are the challenges? I haven't spent a lot of time looking at it. I mean, I'm obviously I'm in California. I'm around it a lot, but I think a lot of people expected it to go legal once uh, Biden got in and as he said, it was going to go legal and it's been kind of like, it's, it's deflated the market a little bit because it hasn't happened, but I do, I do believe in them. I do believe in the industry. I, I think, uh, I think there's a real place for it and, and not just from a recreational point of view. I, I did, uh, I was a very early investor and one of the founding investors of a, a medicinal um, company in California, and we're the number one medicinal company there. So I, I think there's, I, I think the, the rec space is very crowded, and it's hard to differentiate, you know, a, a world, you know, pre-world joint. Um, so, but so I think there's a lot of room in in the medicinal side. Yep. And, and you know, the, and the and the vision is that the big guys really can't get involved right now. You know, the big major companies. So if you can create a brand that you know, has a national footprint and is aware nationally, when things do become legal, there's a, there should be a relatively easy exit. I mean, it's a fascinating space right now, generally. And I can say from personal observation, you know, I've got a lot of family members, I won't name them, but <laughs> that, you know, that uh, I would have never expected to participate recreationally that do now, right? As an alternative to having a glass of wine or to going out to drink. And actually, if you look at the data over the last... It's like five or six years, the percentage of young people drinking has dropped dramatically. And I don't know if that's cultural, like, you know, uh, people just kind of moving away from it, or if it's finding alternatives like recreational cannabis, right? I remember my grandpa saying it, which I wouldn't have expected it. He's like, you know, you can do a lot more damage with the bottle of Jim Beam than you can with the joint. That uh, was what he said. That is very true. <laughs> so I'm also actually a big fan of CBD. Yeah, which I don't think is you know the next coming, but you know, I, I do think from a, a pain relief and a relaxing point of view and a sleep point of view, I, I think it's very relevant. Yeah, 100. percent The other one that was interesting, only because it looks like it's been quite successful, uh, was Artsy. Um, I don't know why. That's just my personal, just a personal, and I was just curious myself. What is it that just looks and it looks different than the other investments in some ways? Okay. Well, it's it, the only reason it's different, Runner, is because it was later stage. Gotcha. I, I did not get involved in that company early on. I got in later stage. But you know, remember what I was talking about earlier. It's it's the same taking an inefficient 
industry and make it more efficient. Mm-hmm. I'm my wife and I are avid collectors of art. Mm-hmm. We love it. And and I've always said every time my wife you know, wants to buy a new piece, I said, you know, I'd love to buy it, but I'd love to sell some of the things we have. So we can at least <laughs> put it up on the wall someplace. So when I met with the founder of Artsy, you know, I, I said there, I said, you know, I would buy more art if I could sell some of the crap I have. And he said, that's exactly the point. <laughs> and so well, it's a highly so illiquid market, right? Like you're not regularly talking to art buyers. And so having access to that easily is a big deal. Well, that's true. So, so what does artsy do? Artsy, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm following an artist or if someone's following an artist that I have and it's in a gallery anywhere in the world, I'll see it. Okay. They have online auctions that you can sell you know, artwork on. They give you information as far as what is the relevant value of the pieces of art. So it gives you all the information and all of the, um, the methods available to really um, fix an, an inefficient market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, is a, there is a method to my method. <laughs> well, again, it seems like almost everything you've invested in is something that you would either be a personal buyer of or that you have just deep knowledge of, right? So you're not investing mm-hmm. outside of your core you know, competencies. My attitude is I have plenty of opportunities for passive investment. Yeah. You know, I, I have other people doing passive investments. I will only invest in industries that I feel comfortable with that I know. I mean, there are some situations where I have a friend who knows the industry really well and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll piggyback off of, of, of him or her. But for the most part, I get in, I get only invest in industries that I know and that where I feel I can add value. Yep. Otherwise, why bother? Have you tracked to your kind of IRR with your personal investing versus your passive investing? Has it outperformed? Can I only count the winners? <laughs> no. <laughs> you can't. You, I, yeah, I, I, I am playing with house money. I, 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 I have not computed my IRR, but I'm certainly playing with house money. <laughs> uh, okay, let's talk a little bit about leadership, right? So you've been a CEO at different times for a long time. Obviously you're spending a lot more time as a board member now, not necessarily as an operator, um, tons of time mm-hmm. as a co-founder early stage. When you think about kind of leadership, what have been some of your observations there? Like what have you seen in terms of, you know, or even just your own personal philosophy in terms of being a leader? Right. Um, well, from a, sitting on a board, um, a, a, you know, a well-respected VC once told me he was on a board with me. He said, the, t- the only role for a board member is to hire and fire a CEO. Mm. Don't, bo- don't really get into too many other things. Mm-hmm. And, and he's actually right. Um, you know, I, I think a board member has to be available 24-7 for advice. Yep. Has to be available yeah. to, to, to be there at a you know, turn on a dime and, and, and be at the company if need be. But a, a board member should not be getting into the weeds mm-hmm. of the company. Okay, unless there's a problem. Now, with early stage companies, you know, you have to be more involved. Okay, there's, there's evolutions of, of, of early stage companies. At first, you're involved in everything, and then you start stepping away, stepping away. One of the key things that I focus on when I'm in an early stage company, and I, I know we're understaffed, is you look for burnout, and you look for... I can, I can see in people's eyes. Mm-hmm. I, I, I walk around an office, you know, when there were offices, it's a little bit harder when somebody. <laughs> yeah. And I can see when somebody's burnt or somebody's stressed or somebody's not happy. 
I can also see when somebody doesn't have that much to do. Yeah. It's really important to have that, you know, emotional quota, you know, the EQ to be able to really go to somebody and say, how are you doing? And is everything all right? And, you know, are, you know, are you getting the support you need? And you know, I really try to do that, um, you know, in every company I'm involved in. Yeah, no, that's a big deal. I think one of the things I've observed that I think is, uh, I don't know, interesting is you know, met a lot of CEOs, met a lot of kind of exec leaders, particularly like leaders of the company. And I, you find that it they basically come from one of three disciplines, either finance, finance background, sales, which is actually, I hear the most common path to being a CEO, or you're a creative, right? You're Bobby Brown herself and you become CEO. And in the case of software companies, you're like the lead engineer basically, right? So, which oddly enough, I find that creative people and engineers are very similar in terms of just who they are. But um, so what I'm curious about is outside of the tactical skills, right? You know how to deploy capital or maybe, I guess that may, may be one thing you want to talk about. What is it about kind of a finance background that you think set you up for success? Is that something you'd advise somebody else if they wanted to follow your same path to kind of go go that route? Or, you know, how do you think about that? Well, you know, I'm coming from a finance background, but you know, I, I did, you know, I, I was a CEO of a company, so I was involved in marketing. So it, it's, it is, yeah. I'm not looking at purely from a, a finance lens. Yep. I kind of always fall back on my finance lens. And from that point of view, as, as I said earlier, you know, I, I look for uh, companies that are not capital intensive. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I look as well. I could see early on if there's going to be something there. I don't want to throw good money at the door. Yep. So, so I'm, I'm always conscious of, you know, how much money will it take to get to a certain level of traction and to be disappointed about that. If it doesn't get there, unless I have a really good excuse why it didn't get there, uh, yeah, I'm tempted to just pull the plug. Yep. Yeah, because you know, and that's the benefit of of you know, consumer products. It doesn't really cost you a lot to see what you have. Yeah, you can figure yeah. it out pretty quickly and pretty cheaply. Right, and, and also you know, especially in the cosmetics industry, as you know, coming from finance, um, there's a clear exit strategy. Mm -hmm. I mean, the industry has changed dramatically in the last twenty years, whereby. You know, you don't, you know, basically you don't see the major companies launching their own brands that much. Yep. You know, sit back and see which indie companies are bubbling up to the top and, uh, and they'll buy them and just put it through their distribution. Yep. And it's a win-win for everybody. So, um, so there's a, you know, so I look for you know, a clear exit. And also I have to say, as a finance guy, I love numbers. <laughs> I'm, I'm a numbers geek and my, my wife hates when I say that, but I am. And I love sitting into these data meetings where, you know, we're analyzing ROAS down to the nth degree and, and, and you know, LTV. And I, you know, I, I can't really contribute that much to it because it's over my head. But I just love looking at the numbers and, and just, it, for me, the numbers, when you have the type of data that you get as a direct-to-consumer, it de-risks a launch dramatically. And as a finance person, I'm always looking for how can I de-risk something. Yeah, and you could see how profitable. It's not like you're, you know, you're throwing a lot of advertising against the wall and see what sticks. You see what the impact is, and and I, I find that very very refreshing and and um, you know 
that's what keeps me going. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, one of the best parts about the kind of direct-to-consumer model at the beginning is you get such immediate feedback loops, right? You know very quickly, right? Like repurchase rates, what's working, what's not working, versus you hand it off to a retailer, you don't really know, right? You don't really have that same connection to it or the same speed in terms of understanding it, as well as the level of depth of data. I, too, having been a co-founder of a company that basically does only data, also, I'm a what you call a data nerd. So that's I, I geek out on it too. Well, let's do one fun end of show question. I'm curious. So you're a big art collector. Who is your favorite current artist? Like the one you're most interested in today, as well as what's your favorite piece of art that you own? Well, um, we are looking for a, uh, a specific piece of art. For, we, we just... Uh, we, we have a place in London. Okay. We spent uh, several months a year there. So there's a spot that we're looking for a piece of artwork. And so I'm going to defer to my wife, who she actually, I have to say, she's more of the protagonist when it comes to the <laughs> art. Okay. And she's determined. She, there's, a, there's an artist called uh, Pierre Solange that she is dying to, to find a piece of his that will fit in this spot. Uh, unfortunately, it's pretty expensive. <laughs> uh, so that's you know that's exciting what cool. what piece of art we have all we have a like you know they're all like, sort of like <laughs> not one. can't pick one uh, yeah. yeah i i mean yeah. we, we have uh we have a robert motherwell in in our uh our foyer here in the city that i always like looking at my world casting yeah there you go well you are certainly i am a um uh beyond a novice when it comes to the art world so I will uh, take your take your word on it. But I really appreciate you taking out the time today, Ken. I think we've now had the whole Tula crew on here, which is uh, a good crew to have on. And uh, you know, congrats again on on everything you you've achieved. Super impressive, and I think mm-hmm. I'm glad that we got to be your first your first podcast. All right. Well, hope I passed the test. <laughs> and more than passed the test. This was awesome. Great talking to you. Be a friend, tell a friend, and subscribe. Earned by Creator IQ. Creator IQ is your all-in-one solution to grow, manage, scale, and measure your influencer marketing program. Ready to unlock the power of the creator economy? Get started with a demo today at creatoriq.com.